Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that makes some cryptic comment about flowers blooming in Berlin, exchanges classified documents on a fog-shrouded bridge, then has energetic sex before driving away in a flash car with an ejector seat, a missile launcher and more than the usual number of cup holders. Yes, in this episode we're going to be talking about spies. Not the James Bonds and Jason Bournes of this world, but the rather more down-to-earth and decidedly less glamorous creations of one of this country's most talented and award-laden thriller writers. Joining me in our virtual incident room to discuss his acclaimed series of Slough House novels is the fabulous Mick Heron, a writer described as the John le Carré of his generation. We'll be talking about Joes and dogs and first desks, and if you haven't got a clue what I'm banging on about, stay tuned. Because if you haven't already, these are books you have got to read. My name's Mark Billingham, and welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Mick, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thank you. So, the John le Carré of your generation, that's a hell of an accolade, and I know he's very much a hero of yours. He is, and um, I'm always delighted that any comparisons are made. But I also feel that there's a there's a sense in which anybody who's writing spy novels is going to be compared to John <laughs> Le Carre because you know, he is the benchmark. Do you go with Le Carre or Le Carre? Well, now I'm not sure, but up until now, <laughs> I would say Le Carre. <laughs> yeah, I've, not, I've, not, I've never been sure how to pronounce it. I've never been sure. Um, now I'm sure we'll spend the majority of our time talking about the the Slough House novels also known as the Jackson Lamb novels, and discussing the most recent in the series, Joe Country. But you've done loads of other stuff, um, aside from novellas and standalones. You're also a poet, and you began as a straight-down-the-line crime writer. So why did you make the move into espionage? It was a number of things. I mean, partly it was a desire to move away from the um, single viewpoint. I mean, my crime novels tended to focus on an individual character. Or a pair of characters, to be fair, alternating through the uh, first four novels I read. Uh, I wanted to write about a group of people. I was very interested in writing about um, failure. Um, I knew I wanted to stick to thriller writing. And so I needed that kind of excuse to have characters involved in large events. Uh, And I was getting more and more interested in writing about um, politics or geopolitics probably is a better way of putting it, uh, about terror events and the like. Um, so I knew that um, if I were writing about a group of people who were going to be involved, however tangentially in such matters, they had to be 
official one way or another. And I didn't want to write about uh, police officers because, as you know, if you write about police officers, you have to get stuff right or you yes. don't get emails. <laughs> well, I, uh, actually, I've, I've heard you say this before and it amazed me because... So, you know, stupidly, I'd thought, oh, we must have to do loads of research to get all this spy stuff right. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it's it? the opposite. You can make up anything <laughs> you like. I mean, obviously, I'm drawing on a, a hinterland of having read books and watched movies and seen TV shows my whole life, the same way most of the rest of us have. You just absorb this stuff. Um, but do, do you not life. get that? You know, you said you, you, we all get these emails, and, and yes, I, I get plenty of them. Do you never get those? You know, Dear Mr. Heron, my enjoyment of your otherwise excellent Slough House novel was sport by the fact that when MI5 do that, they actually, <laughs> I mean, there is nobody who can put you right, is there? Uh, there isn't. I mean, the, the most frightening review I've ever had um, was at an event I did. It was up in Newcastle, my home city, uh, where afterwards I was approached by somebody who um, had apparently used to work for MI5. And he said ah. he found the books very realistic. How scary is that? <laughs> That's really scary. I mean, because I was going to say, um, you know, have have you ever been contacted kind of overtly or covertly by by somebody who who works for the security services and, and has read the stuff, just even just to go, I really enjoy them. Have you ever had those kind of contacts? That nobody, as far as I'm aware, who's currently um, works for uh, the services, but I've had a few emails from people saying, I used to be in this world and really enjoying the books. Um, I personally doubt there's very much. Uh, oh, what, you, you think people advice. are just going, yeah, I, I used I used to work for the service. Because, oh. <laughs> of course, they can say. You can't check, can you? You can't check, you can't check. No, I, I'm, I generally believe people when they tell me stuff, which is uh, perhaps a mistake in this, um, <laughs> in this day and age. Um, but I think people just uh, who say they like them enjoy them for, for other reasons. You know, nobody reads spy novels, the kind I write anyway, for, uh, for a glimpse at how things really work. Now, I'm more I, I, about how they don't work. Well, talking talking about the, the books, uh, for anyone out there who isn't familiar with your stuff, and frankly, they should all be severely beaten around the head and neck, tell us about Slough House and its occupants. Slough House being a, a building in the Barbican in Aldersgate Street? That's right. It's a building I used to walk past several times a day when I worked in that part of London. Um, and... There was no particular reason why the building should have attracted my attention because it's very ordinary. Uh, it's a row of, of shops, there's a restaurant there, and a row of ordinary shops and um, a few floors above of office space. And I suppose what's um, the only thing that's noticeable about it is that it's still standing because most other blocks of that type in that area have been knocked down and other stuff has been put there. Um, and, you know, what they say about location, it's... Um, one of the things you should start with. This series certainly started with the location. Okay. And then this notion I had of writing about a group of people rather than an individual character. I mean, it seemed an obvious place to, to put them. I very unkindly probably decided that this building was so miserable that whatever was going on in there had to be pretty hellish. <laughs> and it all kind of snowballed from there. As I say, I was interested in writing about failure. So I thought putting a bunch of failures together in one place and having them bang heads against each other as much as, you know, deal with any outward threat um, would be quite good fun. I mean, if I could get away with it, I'd write entire novels just with people sitting in the office squabbling. You know, that's, that's really what generates so much of what I'm just doing. Just whole chapters about stationery. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what it became, what, um, what this building became was um, Slough House, a, a sign name that it's given by the people who work there. 
It became a, a department of the Secret Service where those who've messed up their careers get sent, either because they've um, done something deeply wrong, like messed up a surveillance operation or um, or whatever, you know, some kind of screw up like that, left confidential information on a on a tube train or a bus, which has happened so often since I wrote yes. my movies. Um, or they have issues of one kind or another, whether it's um, alcohol or drug use or anger management or one thing or another. Uh, or political, you know, they've simply run afoul of the wrong superior officer and therefore been sent into this kind of exile. My idea was that um, it's far too difficult often to, to sack somebody, uh, particularly if they have some kind of issue that um that has, has caused their problems at work uh, so therefore they simply get transferred to this department where they're given a lot of soul destroying very dull jobs to do in the hope that they will simply quit of their own accord and stop being a nuisance uh, at the time i was working i should say um as a sub-editor on a on an employment law journal and i think a lot of that kind of notion came from what i was doing at work so all those things came together really and um yeah i um started writing slow horses in 2008 i think it was and i hadn't realized i hadn't intended at the time that it would become a, a series but i've been i've been there more or less ever since yeah so many people say that about their own series i never intended there to be six or seven or 25 books um but something i mean obviously there's a commercial element to it isn't it when a book proves popular the publisher goes any more of those in your back pocket we certainly don't write books that we want people to ignore so yes the no. commercial aspect of it always has to be there um and there's a certain amount of come on when you, well you'll know yourself you know writing a series has a certain number of advantages creatively and a certain number of disadvantages keeping it mm. fresh is a is a big disadvantage I, because I'm writing about a bunch of characters and because I, I have a kind of revolving door policy, I will kill characters off and bring new ones in. I can kind of refresh while keeping this central situation uh, the same. And there, there comes in that kind of soap opera element where you're interested and you hope your readers are interested in showing the continuing lives of the characters you're writing about, how they do develop, how their relationships develop. And that becomes one of the kind of generating impulses of each new novel i don't know what the next novel will be about as far as plot is concerned but i do know what the relationship of these two characters is going to be like in the next oh. novel. that kind of thing so there's a okay. ghost novel waiting well that's one that's one of the things i love about the series is that uh i mean you talk about it, to, it about as, as an ensemble and there's this amazing cast of characters river and Catherine and louisa and shirley and marcus and of course jackson lamb himself who we'll talk about a little later but you just hinted at one of the things that that i think is a real strength of the series is the way you move certain characters in and out of focus depending on the story depending on what on, on what's happening i mean i love one of my favorite characters is a character called roddy ho who perhaps you should you should explain in a minute but but the way he, he you know he becomes absolutely central to london rules and gets his gets his kind of moment in the well his moment in the sun i'm not sure it's exactly <laughs> the moment he'd have been thinking of but you know i i love that way that you know favorite characters get get stage time depending on the story well this, this is the opportunity is offered by an ensemble of pieces i mean you do think well next time i think i'll focus on someone i haven't written so much about because you know there's there's mileage there um a lot of it i think of as being choreography as much as anything else you know you have to make sure that all the characters are involved in in the dance even though some of them aren't doing particularly important things in in any given novel yeah now I, you you're writing about a very real 
London. Uh, and this inevitably means that you're you're reflecting on real events and, and changing times, and you know you're interested in geopolitics, as you said. Uh, and this is probably most apparent, I think, in the well, to me, in the in the terrorist atrocities that are at the centre of Spook Street. Um, now, how hard is it to incorporate events like this into 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 a piece of popular fiction? And do you ever worry about getting overtaken by real events? Yes, in fact, in Spook Street, I kind of was when Spook Street. As I say, Spook Street begins with a terrorist event in a, in a shopping centre. And uh, when it was published, it was published very shortly after. I know that my first public event for it was in the just a few days after the Manchester bombing. Right. And that did seem to be quite close to the uh, to the knuckle. You know, I'm inventing entertainment, in vertical, yeah. uh, which has these horrible events in it. And then... Um, real world events happen and you have to kind of justify that there's a passage in london rules which i wrote immediately after spook street in which i was i was writing at the point um, at the time that spook street was published at the time of the manchester bombing there is a, a, a page in it towards the end which talks about the effects on cities of terror events and that was that was my deliberate response having thought about you know my duties and obligations as a as a novelist uh, and how to handle reality and what the kind of correlation between the two is if you like um so my my response to it appears in in london rules it's um a passage about the bells of london all ringing right, at the yeah. same time uh and it's one of the very few pieces i've written and it's about a page and a half long which is virtually as i wrote it i'm a i'm a huge rewriter i rewrite and revise all the time but i i sat down and wrote that and i barely changed any of it afterwards it's um it's unusual that it happens well, that way for me. And I think it's because I had something real to write about. Well, I suppose talking of real events, the obvious question is, is where do you stand on reflecting the events we're living through right now? I mean, I, I'm guessing you're probably still writing next year's book or, or finishing touches <laughs> to next year's book. book. Is, next year's book was finished. I delivered it just a, a well, my editors were still at their desks then. So it was um, oh, right. March. So we're not going to see Slough House it's, in lockdown. The, we're not going to see Slough House in lockdown. I started writing another one since. And this, hopefully, you know, will be, will be, this will be behind us by the time uh, oh, this will be 2022. Um, so obviously I'm having to kind of imagine what the world is going to look like. And, yeah, you know, it is going to leave scars and I'm trying to incorporate those scars, but I'm not writing about it. No. Well, there I, will be I, memories of people, you know, in lockdown and so on, but it's not going to be a huge part of the, of the book. I would, I would certainly put money on Jackson Lamb flouting lockdown rules well either flouting them or, or because he would have inside information about exactly when the lockdown was coming he would have filled his flat with whiskey and cigarettes just piled them up i think he probably stayed in slow house the funny thing about the, the next book is that i decided that i wasn't going to use the b word i wasn't going to mention brexit at all so instead yeah. i refer to you know what <laughs> um, I refer to you know things are different since you know what, and it occurs to me looking at it now there are people who are going to read this and think I'm referring to uh, COVID nineteen, you know this unnamed yeah. disaster that has occurred. Yeah. Um, something I should have said already, and and I very much want to stress to the listeners is that the, you know these are fabulously plotted, exciting spy thrillers character rich brilliantly written but they're also hugely funny um now you know you've you've been in a situation where the same book has won i think you know straight down the line crime award and also a humorous crime award you know humor is something that's that, that's really runs through the books is it has it always been something that was that's been important to you as a writer uh i guess although the earlier books before this series were a lot less funny less overtly so 
Um, I think it felt when I started writing Slow Horses that um, that I found a, an appropriate tone in which to write these stories, to write these characters, and it had a lot more humour in it, a lot more cynical humour in it than uh, than I'd ever uh, adopted before. I mean, in many ways, it was you know the narrative voice is as much a character as any of the yes. actual named individuals, and I think that um, in those first few books that narrative voice is far more cynical than I was. You know, it was, it was partly being put on um, for slightly humorous effect, yes, but also simply for, uh, to, to create a certain kind of atmosphere. I mean, I've caught up with it now. Since 2016, I've become a lot more cynical, as I think uh, many people have. <laughs> um, that year was the great alibi for people writing sort of plots like mine, because you can now get away with anything. I can invent any, no matter how absurd something I invent is i can just point at reality now and say look it's not as not as far-fetched as what's actually yeah. happening um so yeah the, the humor is a big part of it um most of it to be fair is, is comes from the the dialogue uh between the characters and I, I do feel that people in this situation very thwarted characters people who are frustrated by the um, direction their lives has taken them in they're going to respond either by becoming sort of bitterly depressed or <laughs> or just snarking at each other all the time which is where most of the uh, where the one-liners come in well that's that's office life isn't it i mean it is office life uh, and it's you know supposedly it's emergency services life isn't it the uh, the black humor is how you cope with the dreadfulness of what you're dealing with well you say you say black humor and i, th I, I it often it is often very dark humor and i think it's it, in my opinion it's at its darkest in in the most recent novel uh, Joe Country, which we'll be talking about in more detail uh, in part two, and we'll also be talking about what's next for Slow Horses, and of course about the wonderful Jackson Lamb. Before we do that, it's that time in the program when we find out what our man with the spyglass, our roving reporter Paul Hirons, has been up to. What have you got for us, Paul? Yes, thank you, Mark. Now, with all this talk of spies and espionage, I thought it'd be a good time to take a trip down memory lane to give you all a potted history of the great British spy novel, a subgenre of crime fiction that has endured, believe it or not, for almost 200 years. Spies often have to lead a lonely double life. Their work is often carried out in a parallel world, one that sits behind the world we see and hear around us. And it's this duality that has fascinated spy novel lovers for decades, and it's one of the reasons why each new generation keeps coming back for more. Spy fiction as a genre is generally thought to have been started by American writer James Fenimore Cooper with Spy in 1821. But fast forward 80 years to the beginning of the 20th century and war and revolution was ravaging the world and, not surprisingly, this climate of fear, suspicion and paranoia was the perfect breeding ground for spy novels. Rudyard Kipling, yes, that Rudyard Kipling of the Jungle Book fame, addressed Anglo-Russian tensions in his novel Kim in 1901, while Joseph Conrad really began to dig deeper into the shadowy world of spies with this secret agent in 1907, Under Western Eyes in 1911, and The Man Who Was Thursday in 1908. And there were more. G.K. Chesterton, Irish author Erskine Childers, William Lecure and E. Phillips Oppenheim were all writing spy novels around that tumultuous time. 
Even the great Arthur Conan Doyle dabbled. Three Sherlock Holmes stories had shades of espionage about them, not least 1917's His Last Bow, where Sherlock acted as a double agent. Then, of course, came the two world wars, which gave authors ample opportunity to explore that secret world beneath the world that exists all around us, introducing us to characters who, in their own quiet and perhaps not so quiet way, saved entire nations. John Buchan's The 39 Steps is a perfect example of this and was a huge hit in 1915, while Eric Ambler's novels in the 30s provided new perspectives on the genre and Leslie Charteris's much-loved Simon Templar character added a sheen of glamour to proceedings. But arguably it was the Cold War that precipitated the golden age of spy fiction. And of course this was a war fought not by soldiers with guns and tanks on battlefields made from mud and bricks, but by civil servants and covert agents who lurked in the shadows. Ian Fleming, a former member of British naval intelligence, gave us the glamorous secret agent, I don't know, some bloke called James Bond in 1951, while John le Carré, a former spy himself and someone you mentioned earlier, Mark, became one of the masters of the genre with his anti-heroic character for the ages, George Smiley. And another former British intelligence officer, Graham Greene, also wrote legendary books like Our Man in Havana, The Quiet American and The Human Factor, while Len Dayton emerged in the 1960s to become one of the genre's leading lights with hits like The Ipcris File, Horse Underwater and Funeral in Berlin. You want more? How about James Mitchell's David Callan series, Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal, Jack Higgins, Trevor Dudley-Smith, the list really does go on. As we've entered the 21st century, there have been more wars, acts of terrorism the likes of which we've never seen before, and technology that has changed not only the real world, but also the world that the secret agent inhabits. Or at least the apparatus the spies use has changed. The tech might be different, but the stories and the characters, and indeed the genre, still endure. With that, it's back to you and Mick in your cosy virtual Zoom interrogation room. Oh, and just one more thing, Mark. Cigarda. Thank you, Paul. We are back with the mighty Mick Heron, and we're talking spy novels. Um, the latest entry in the Slough House series is Joe Country, deservedly long-listed for this year's Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award. Now, this one takes a number of the slow horses out of London, and it's made pretty clear early on that they won't all be coming back. So tell the listeners a little about this one. Uh, well, the starting point for this one was um, was an image, which is unusual for me. I'm, my imagination is mostly fired by language. I'm very um, verbal in, in uh, how I um, respond uh, to, to stuff. But this one started with a, a picture in my head. Is it the owl? Is it the owl? <laughs> it isn't the owl. It isn't the owl. Oh. But it's um, the same sort of uh, scenery, more or less. So I had a picture of a, um, a tree on a, on a snow-covered field, a tree and a character sitting under the tree. And I knew two things about this character. I knew that who they were, that they were one of the characters that I worked with for a long time in, in the series, and I knew they were dead. So the invention of the plot of Joe Country it was essentially working out the context in which that scene could be allowed to happen. Oh. I had an end point, more or less an end point, once that idea came to me. Um, and everything was a matter of 
constructing the, the route to get there, which is... That must know, have been a heck of a strong image for it, to, for it to be powerful enough to essentially dictate the entire story. Um, it, it was. Um, on the other hand, these are the things you look for as a, a writer, mm -hmm. aren't you? You look for home base or something. You think, okay, that's where yeah. I'm going to write. Now I know what I can, can focus on. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't normally happen that way, I have to say. I mean, I'm normally more or less aware of what the ending is, um, but uh, plotting is more of a painstaking process than that usually. This, this was more of a kind of... I had a big leap there straight away. So, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't as if you it wasn't as if you'd finished the previous the book previous to that and gone right. That character is toast in the next one. It just came as a surprise to you. Uh, I guess a surprise. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to measure how ideas affect us when they're occurring to us. You know, um, it's not something I particularly wanted to do. I was um, I was fond of this character. Um, on the other hand, that's one of the great freedoms of being. A writer. I mean, as I said before, a lot of the um, uh, energies of the books come from uh, office life, uh, and in actual office life, you're not allowed to murder people you've worked with for a long time. Whereas, <laughs> as a novelist, you are, and in fact, you kind of have a duty to, don't you, to um, all those other people who are working in offices and are not allowed to murder their colleagues. If I fail to do this when the opportunity presented itself, I'd be letting those people down. Well, also, of course, you are writing about a bunch of people who, who, who don't have an ordinary office job. And because of the nature of the business they're in, some of them are, you know, you can't, you can't write 7, 12, 15 books with them all unscathed. You know, Absolutely. people Absolutely. are going to have to cop it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I never, I don't write characters out because I've grown bored with them. Um, I will write them out when, when a plot, particular plot, particular novel demands that they go. I mean, I miss all the characters that I've, uh, that I've dispatched. Well, <laughs> not, not, not all the baddies, obviously. But, um, you know, they... Yeah. They, do you, do you there do, are voices okay. I can't use anymore. And that's... Well, I, I mentioned the, the humour in the books and, and, and how I thought it was particularly dark humour in, in, in this one. Is that, is that down to the story because of what happens in the story and to some of the characters? Or is it in any way a reflection of how you feel about the times we're living in, Mick? Probably a bit of both. Um, I think mostly it's the, the actual novel and the awareness that it was going to involve the deaths of, um, of established characters. But it's... I mean, the humour gets blacker because because the times get worse, I think. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's no way around that. You look at the state that we're in as a nation, and this is even leaving aside, you know, the coronavirus, and um, what's going on in various other parts of the world. And it's difficult to be that much of an optimist, isn't it? Oh, yeah, without, without essentially writing cartoons. It yeah, yeah. Funny enough, it was by a, um, it was an anthology of satirical writings, which was edited by, if I'm right, Kenneth Baker, who was in Thatcher's cabinet. Yeah. Um, so it's a funny character for me to be drawing um, inspiration from. But he edited an anthology of satirical writing called, I think it was, I Have No Gun But I Can Spit. And this is, I think, the attitude I take towards it. There's very little I can do about what's going on in the world, but I can register my contempt for all of it. Well, did, 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 
absolutely anticipated the, the next thing I was going to ask you about, which was a, precisely this, because each book, we have this wonderful regular ensemble cast, but but with each book, or, or sometimes creeping over a couple of books, you also have this glorious cast of supporting characters. Uh, we have the bumbling yet venal uh, politician Peter Judd, who is not a million miles away, should we say, uh, for, from our own Prime Minister, and one of my favourite characters, Dennis Gimble, this 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 Eurosceptic populist character. Uh, and I was going to say, you know, to what what degree do you do you think of yourself as a satirical writer? But I think you've you've already answered that question. Yeah, I never set out to do that, but as soon as you start writing about politics, and an element of satire is going to creep in, isn't it? I mean, even if you're writing a thoroughly realistic depiction of what political life in Britain is like today. It would come across as satire because it's Absolutely. so ludicrous. Absolutely. Um, so so let's let's talk about Jackson Lamb. Now the series is often referred to as the Jackson Lamb. I think it says Jackson Lamb on the spines or on the kind of It has done um and that may change. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, okay. uh, that was okay. essentially a, a marketing um decision <laughs> because when um I mean my career was was nowhere uh after after Dead Lions, um, I think what after after you, after winning all these awards? Um, yeah, yeah, because there was I, I still was very difficult to find in bookshops, and you know nobody okay. had ever read any of the books yet. Right. Um, and when John Murray took me on, um, uh, led by the, the the wonderful editor there, Mark Richards, who's just left to start his own press, um, he relaunched the first two books as paperbacks while waiting for the third book to come out in hardback. And again, they, they kind of disappeared without trace. So they relaunched again. They redesigned the covers and calling them Jackson Lamb novels at that stage was, was part of the whole rebranding exercise. And they decided that having an individual character to, yeah. to latch everything else onto would be good for the books and would, you know, catch on more with with readers and you know whatever it worked i mean at worked. that point that's when it all started changing and, um, and yet the, yeah. the the oddity is that i mean he is a dominant you know he's a very dominant character but he's he has significantly less stage time quite often yep, uh, than some of the other true. characters in the book yeah. um so where i've heard you talk in the past about the influence of of uh andy dl from the reg hill books absolutely is, is yes. that kind of where jackson yeah. came from um <clears throat> i i Partly, yes, but um, I think that even with with Reg Hill, he was dealing with um, with an archetypal figure uh, who he made, you know, very individual and very very memorable. But you can trace um, Andy DL's parentage back through, you know, all the way to Falstaff and, and beyond. And so that idea of a larger than life, more or less kind of sacred monster type character, has been around forever, really. And the best any writer can hope for, I think, is just to kind of burnish this, the, the archetype rather than create something new. I don't think yeah. I did anything new with Jackson Lamb. I'm just having fun standing on the shoulders of what other people have done. Uh, he's, he has just become so phenomenally popular. And as you say, for a character who is largely extremely unpleasant, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, very questionable uh, personal habits, very rude. I just want to read one quote for my readers, one of my favourite quotes, um, where he says, I favour the carrot and stick approach. And somebody <laughs> says, carrot or stick? And he goes, no, I use the stick to ram the carrot up their asses. Uh, that generally gets results. Um, he, uh, he, he's just, you, even, even when you go into a portion of the book that he's not there, you're longing for him to come back. You know, he is one of those characters. You, your, your kind of heart lifts a little bit when you go into his office, you know. Um, and yet, you're never inside his head. No. In a way you are no. with other characters. That's right. I think there are 
couple of moments in the first two books where you maybe get slight glimpse of what's what's going on there but then um the more i worked with him the more i realized that i want to keep my distance there and just show what he says and what he does rather than what he's thinking well i think there must have been some something some inkling early on then some subconscious part of your brain that went this character's going to become really important he certainly wasn't intended to be you know right from the outset but he um he's so much fun to write that it became inevitable that he would take up more time on the page um and keeping out of his head is is for very practical reasons really i mean either either he means every word he says in which case he is just intolerable he's just a bad (laughs) person or he doesn't in which case he loses his edge he loses the the danger so not revealing that is is the best way of keeping him alive much much for much more fun when he's not explained Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a very different kind of fictional creation, but I think that's when Hannibal Lecter lost all the power he had as a character when Thomas Harris explained him. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. No. Uh, Jackson is just this, this force of nature. Um, can you tell us anything? Now, now, we, now we're getting into secrets. Can you tell us anything about the next Slough House book, which I think is coming in February next year? February next year, yes. I can tell yeah. you the title, if you like. Which Oh, would you love to know that? I think this is... Um... An exclusive. It's not being oh, announced. Fabulous. It is called Slough House, and that's okay. what it's about. <laughs> okay. Now, go, um, okay. Let me just clear this up, Mick, before yeah. you say anything, because I also did read something somewhere that hinted that this might be the last one. Say it ain't so, Mick. Uh, it ain't so. You know, I get this a Good. lot. I get Good. some people saying, "Oh, I believe your last book was the last one," <laughs> and I don't know whether. People want me to stop, but are just too polite to <laughs> say so. Uh, no, in fact, um, Slough House is the first of a two-book deal, so I've already started work on the, the one after that. Yeah, brilliant. And brilliant. I have no, you know, no end game in in sight. Um, that's not to say that won't happen, but uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm perfectly content uh, working with these characters. Yeah, at the end of Joe Country, I left in a couple of, just at the, right at the last couple of pages, uh, uh, I left a few things hanging, which I didn't know how they would be resolved. It gave me an impetus to, um, before I started to work on the next book, I thought, well, I have to deal with these things. I'd never done that right. before. I don't know whether you um, like well, toy it, with yourself in that well, manner. I, I get, there's a thing that happened, I think, towards the end of the, the previous book, where it, it's just that thing where you go, I'm not going to tie that loose end up, because, yeah. you know, I, I'd just rather leave it hanging, let the reader try and imagine kind of what happened, because actually, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Uh-huh. Uh, and you'll still get a dozen emails going, what happened to her? What, what happened to her? And I go, oh, well, I th- I've got a kind of idea of what happened, but what do you think? I mean... You, you can't satisfy, you know, I suppose when, when it's characters who you know are going to reappear in the next book, then you can deal yeah. with it. Yeah. And, that, and, and that does get dealt with in, in what we now know to be Slough House, the next book. Yeah, there are a couple of um, directions. One, I don't think these are spoilers particularly, um, one being um, the uh, direction Diana Taverner looks like taking the, uh, the service in. She's the first desk, as I call her, of the yeah. Secret Service. Uh, and the other being the uh, the, the realisation that um, Slough House has been apparently wiped from all official <laughs> records. So these were the um, the starting points for the new book. But the new book also does something I've I've not really done before, and that's um, take off from very much from real events. Um, the the Salisbury poisonings are one of the triggers for the plot. Okay. Um, 
yeah, and that's probably as much as I want to say at the moment. As you want uh, to reveal, well, okay, well, let's move on to something else you may <laughs> not want to reveal too much about. Um, because I mentioned these these whispers, which you've already uh, said are rubbish about. It's going to be the last one. No, it's not for anybody listening. Um, the other the other thing that there's been a lot of talk about uh, is a forthcoming TV adaptation of the books. And I know that there's not very much you can you can say about it. But is there anything you can tell us without having to kill us all? Um, I, I wouldn't kill you because I needed to, Mark. I'd do it because I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Not really. Um, it's uh, Apple TV are, are, are doing it, um, and they have um, a strict keep your mouth shut policy. <laughs> so, uh, I'm barely allowed to say anything. What I can say, because it's uh, in the public domain, is that Gary Oldman will be playing um, Jackson now. That's very exciting news. I'm going to um, say you can't just you can't just say that. I mean, that is that is hugely exciting, isn't it? Very very exciting. Uh, I haven't met him yet, but we've um, we've chatted on the phone, and um, yeah, he's um, he seems very much up for it, and I'm very wow. much looking forward to seeing what he does with it. Well, it's weird because he's not a he's not an actor you would. I mean, he's a brilliant brilliant actor, which is all you want at the end of the day. Um, mm. But maybe not somebody certainly physically who you'd have thought about until you'd seen him as Churchill, I guess. Yes, yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I hadn't seen Churchill at the time the announcement was made, I, uh, the darkest hour, rather. Um, and I've watched it since and thought, yeah, he can he can do that. He can do anything. <laughs> exactly, as opposed to uh, the only thing you've seen him in being Sid Vicious, playing Sid Vicious in Sid and Nancy, you'd probably thought, Jackson Lamb? <laughs> he looks a bit small. <laughs> and he was a bit too young then, to be fair. No, it is fantastic because because having a brilliant actor is all that's important. I mean, whenever something is adapted for the screen, you know, that's the beauty of reading, isn't it? You know, nobody's going to go, he's the perfect, you know, he's the Jackson Lamb I've always had in my head. What you want is is, is a hugely talented actor to become Jackson Lamb. Absolutely, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Uh, I have to say, I do know some of the other casting and there are some equally exciting... Um, oh, but you're not going to tell us. I'm not anything. allowed to tell you... Any any well, word about about when it might possibly come to the screen? Uh, no, I think everybody is waiting on um, the next set of government guidelines that come down. Uh, I heard course, something on uh, the radio yesterday, the day before, about um, the film industry starting to uh, put forward proposals for one thing or another. I don't know how you film anything while social distancing yeah. is still going on. Um, I don't know how you film, you know, sort of just. London streets, you know. Um, I know. So there's an awful lot uh, needs to be worked. I read out. something. I read something in the paper the other day that said that TV companies are going to start now having to hire actors who are also married couples. Yes, it's the only way yeah. they can film, shall we say, intimacy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are some working couples out there who have been very delighted with this news, but um, it does narrow the field a bit when it comes to um, casting choices, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it will it will work itself out one way or another. Well, well, whenever it whenever it does uh, happen, it's hugely exciting news for those of us who are fans of the book. Listen, Mick, before we let you go, just going to spring this on you. We always ask uh, guests on the podcast for for a couple of recommendations: a recommendation of something they've read uh, and of something they've seen on TV. We've all we all had plenty of time to be doing both of those uh, over the last few months. So, what could you recommend to our listeners? Uh, reading. Well, one of the um, things I've been doing over the past couple of weeks is rereading a lot of um, Lawrence Block's Matt Scudder novels. Uh-huh. Oh, from which yeah. your very own podcast takes a, a title from one of them. Yes, yeah, indeed. Um, 
And those are, are, are wonderful fun. Uh, but a new book, um, Lucy Atkins' new novel, Magpie Lane, has just been um, published, and that's okay. Grand. She's a, a mate, she lives in Oxford. And so I'm quite biased there, but uh, it's a very fine piece of work. And that's okay. by Quirkus, and it was out a couple of weeks ago. Okay, thank you. And what about what about something to watch, something to binge watch in these uh, these lo- days of lockdown? Uh, well, I've just caught up with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You... Oh yeah, oh, it's fantastic. I, well, I I I'm about I think about two episodes into the second season, so I've, I'm probably a bit behind. But it, yes, no, I absolutely adored that. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, that, anybody who hasn't watched that. Possibly recommend that. Yeah. yeah, for anybody that hasn't watched that, it's about a kind of uh, where, where, so when are we talking? Fifties, nineteen sixty. I think it's when Six, it starts. Okay, and uh, it's about a, a a woman whose life is all set to be perfectly ordinary. She's about to get married. You know, very very sort of typical New York Jewish family in at that time, and she suddenly because of various things that happen to her becomes a stand-up comedian and starts hanging out with Lenny Bruce. It's a very weird series, but beautiful to look at. It is, absolutely extraordinary. The the clothing enough is uh, alone, isn't it? Yeah, the opening sequences, almost as bravura as your own, Mr Heron, shall we say. (laughs) Um, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. There we go. A huge thank you to Mick Heron for joining us on the latest episode of A Stab in the Dark. The most recent Slough House novel, Joe Country, is out now in paperback, published by John Murray. You can watch all the best crime drama on Alibi, which is available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT and Talk Talk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please remember to review, rate and subscribe. It really does make a difference to us and to the future of the podcast. If you don't, well, I'll have to come round to your house with what looks like a cigarette, but is actually a highly good and deadly weapon that can blast the nuts off a squirrel at a thousand paces. A special thanks to our producers Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. Thanks.